Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. Today we're continuing our series called Choices, Decisions That Shape the Soul. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. Well, good morning. You can have a seat. My name is Jennifer Roth. I'm the pastor of women's ministries here. And I don't know what kind of week you have had, uh, but the week that I have had has been rather exciting. Um, I don't know if you know this, but our family is fairly involved with the Silverton High School Foxes basketball team. My brother-in-law is the coach. My nephew is one of the players. We had a state championship this week. It was an exciting time. There was another uh, championship that might be a little lesser known for you. Um, I happen to be coaching the girls' third and fourth grade YMCA team from Silverton. Thank you very much. League champions won yesterday. (laughs) And I don't know what kind of week you've had or where you've been coming from, but it is my prayer that God has been preparing your heart to be here with us this morning, and I am glad that you're here. Uh, One of the things that I have been very much aware of throughout this week is this coming weekend, because the passage that I get to preach this morning is not an easy passage to read, to talk about, nor to kind of apply to our own lives. And so I do need to say this. If you've got children with you who are younger kids, and you would not let them see a PG-13 movie, you might want to consider finding another place for them for the next 30 minutes. And I hate to do that at the last minute. I just need to tell you, my eight-year-old will not hear this sermon. Um, my 14-year-old will hear this sermon, and my 12-year-old, he and I sat down this week and looked at the content, and he got to decide whether or not he wanted to be here to hear this sermon. So if you don't usually use our children's classes during this hour, there are ushers in the lobby who would help you get to either Children's Church or over to C2, um, and we know if you need to do that. So freedom to move about as you need. So the reason this one is so hard is because it's about the abuse of power. And we're going to look not only at the abuse of power in the passage, but at the abuse of power as we see it in our own lives, and that's hard to look at. Uh, But before we dive in, I wanna tell you a story. Long time ago, between junior high and early high school for me, uh, you need to know that as I grew up, I got along better with boys than I did with girls. Uh, Girl drama went over my head, and that didn't work out so well for making friends with them, because I didn't play the game right, because I didn't get it. But boys made sense, especially because in third, fourth, and fifth grade, I was actually stronger and faster than most of them. And so the games of chase, or you know, you take something from her or whatever, they always ended up in a wrestling tussle of some sort or another, and quite often I could win. When I hit middle school, my mom did tell me that girls shouldn't be wrestling with boys anymore, and and she was right, and if your mom has told you that, she is right, Um, but I didn't listen. And so there came a time when I was with a group of my friends, and it was a safe and platonic setting, and I did something, I don't know what I did, but I did something to one of my friends, and he decided to teach me a lesson. And so he pinned me down. And something strange had happened between third, fourth, fifth grade. The tables had turned and I was no longer stronger. I was still faster, but I was no longer stronger. And he got me pinned down until the only thing I could move was my foot. But I was so competitive and certain that I could just will anything out that I was kicking him with my foot and all I could move was my ankle. And he twisted his foot in such a way that I couldn't even move my ankle. And something in that instant happened inside me, and it petrified me. I'd never felt it before, and to the praise of God, I've never felt it since. But I had never felt so completely powerless, and like there was a person who had so much power over me. And in that instant, I understood that barring the occasional outlier, a male is stronger than a female, and he can do what he wants. And I said, enough, enough, I'm done, I'm done. 
And it was the end of my wrestling with boys because I, I got it and I understood. And it's a feeling that I have never forgotten, nor do I want to forget. And in the passage that we read, it didn't turn out as well. We start in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, which if you want to read along is on page 505 in your pew Bible. We actually back up a little bit to 2 Samuel 12 because you might remember that last week Brian Candela was preaching about David and his sin with Bathsheba. And when David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, here's what Nathan said. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. What we get to look at is the aftermath. And, and I have to say from the start, I don't get it. Why one man sins and somebody else suffers. And I need you to know, I am not preaching a message on why these kinds of things happen. Number one, because I don't know the answer. And number two, because I don't actually think it's the right question. In the same conversation with Nathan, David confesses his guilt. And Nathan says, your sins are forgiven and you won't die for this sin. So we've got this tension of your sins are forgiven and they are still going to have an impact on your family because there are consequences for the things that we do. When David was taking another man's wife as his own, the other wives in the harem were watching. And the other children in the harem were watching. You see, when this story starts... The cultural and social system that is going on is not the cultural and social system that God established in the beginning. See, in the beginning, we had the Garden of Eden, and we had Adam, who was not complete without Eve, and we've got a man and a woman who are in a committed partnership together, and that, that marriage of one man and one woman is the foundational building block of all the society that God brings, and that partnership has a purpose. You are to be fruitful and multiply, to rule the world and to subdue it. They have a purpose. They have authority in the world that is God-given, and they have the empowerment of God who is walking with them regularly in the garden. This is God's system. A healthy partnership, a godly purpose, and a God who empowers. But the system that we encounter is a nation who were God's people who decided they didn't want to just follow God anymore. They wanted a king like all the nations around them. So now they have a king who has absolute authority in his kingdom, and the king has decided that he wants several wives. As I've been pre preparing for the message, I've been imagining the harem, the, the gossip, the backbiting, the, the positioning and the posturing, even the... the conflicts between the children of the different wives. This wasn't how God intended it to be, and this is the system that the children of David are born into and raised in. And we start in chapter 13, verse 1. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. So you've got Absalom and Tamar, who are the children of David's fourth wife. Makkah is the daughter of the king of Geshur. This is presumably the first marriage that David had that was politically inspired as a treaty between those two countries. Makkah is apparently a beautiful woman because Absalom and Tamar stand up above the other children of David as exceptionally beautiful people. It was not unusual for Tamar to be noticed. As a matter of fact, as a virgin daughter of the king, Tamar would have had certain robes and ornamented robes that would have identified her as that. She was a jewel among the princesses. There was a good reason why Amnon thought he would never have her. The virgin daughters of the king were exceptionally protected. The wives and the daughters of the king had eunuchs that protected them. They had servants who were with them from their infancy, I presume. 
There were protections in place for the daughter of a king, and Amnon knew that. The other thing he must have known was that in Leviticus 18, when, when the law was being written and there's this whole chapter on sexual sins that are inappropriate and unacceptable, um, believe it or not, being married to your sister is in the list. This was not something that was gonna be possible for him. And this is the first lesson in our message. When we know that something is wrong, we need to turn away quickly and not allow our minds to dwell and our hearts to mope and to, and to complain and to drag because we're not gonna get what we want, but to go to God to confess our desire and to commit our desire to him and to submit ourselves to his rule and to his will. If we don't take that first step of turning away, we find ourselves in danger with Amnon and go down a path of destruction that we will wish that we had not gone down. But Amnon had a crafty friend. Enter the crafty friend. Lesson number two. Be careful who you hang out with and who you consider as your trusted advisors. His cousin Jonadab, he was the son of David's brother Shimea. One day, Jonadab said to Amnon, what is the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. You know, if you want to do a little extra study after the sermon is over later today or during this week, look up 1 Corinthians 13 and see what it says about love. Because it's not what we see described in this story. And maybe it's not what you see lived out in your life, in your relationships, in your marriage. And if 1 Corinthians 13 is not a good reflection of the way that you love others or are loved by others, I encourage you to go to God and talk about what's wrong with the picture that has gotten twisted when our love is self-serving instead of others serving. I'm fascinated by this question that Jonadab asks. Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? There's something imbued in that question, isn't there? You are the son of a king. You are the heir to the throne. Amnon is David's oldest son. He is presumably the heir to the throne. Second to David in the kingdom, this man should get whatever he wants. Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? What would deject you that you can't get? You're the son of the king. There's this entitlement that rises to the surface and entitlement will kill us. When we feel like we deserve something that somebody else should have, could have, or that, that is to serve our own purposes, we need to let the alarm bells go off and the, the red lights start flashing and go, careful, careful. Is this a desire, a godly desire, or is this something that I now feel entitled to that helps cement the next step into a path that we really don't want to go down, even though it looks so good on this side? Jonadab had a plan. His plan was, go to bed, pretend you're sick, tell your father that you want Tamar, your sister, to come and prepare food and feed you herself. Deceit and manipulation, well-planned out control. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to him, how did he know the king would come to him? This is the heir to the throne we're talking about. Sickness in that day was life or death, even more so than it is now. They didn't know what was causing sickness. So the king comes, and when the king comes, Amnon asked him, please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch, and then I can eat from her hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. I have a confession to make. I believe in God, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, and I am not very happy with David right now. <laughs> I have spent a month reading this story, and. I'm not very happy with David right now. 
Why did he not protect Tamar? Why did he not keep in place the rules of the harem and the kingdom and the separation of men and women? And and that gets messy and, and that gets overdone and I get all of that. But what about... What about his days in the desert when he would inquire of the Lord? Lord, is this something that I should do? Did he inquire of the Lord for Tamar, his daughter? David abdicated his authority as a father and sent Tamar into the wolf's den. Do I think David knew what Amnon had planned? No, I don't think he knew what Amnon had planned. But do I think he stood up as her father, trusted his gut, and protected her? No, I don't think he did. And I don't know why. So Tamar arrived. She cooked the food. He was still throwing a fit. He wouldn't eat, and so he sent all the servants out. Can you imagine being her servant? Perhaps having known her from her infancy, followed her, your job is to protect and to keep and to help her. And this man, who's the second in the kingdom, commands you to leave. You have no choice. You must leave. And she's left alone with her brother. And he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him, but as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. Does it not just make your skin crawl? And in this system that they live in, Tamar knows that there is no place for a defiled woman, be she a daughter of the king or not. There is no future, there is no husband, there is no children. And she begins a fight for her very life. And with amazing wisdom, she brings an argument that any wise man would have listened to. No, my brother, she cried, don't be foolish, don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it and he will let you marry me. She says, we are God's people and God's people don't do this. She says, what about me? Where could I go? There will be no home for me. And what about you? Consider yourself. Consider how foolish this would make you. Consider Amnon. And she gives him a way out. Talk to my father. He'll let you marry me. Verse 14, the verse that has captured me since I started reading this passage. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. (laughs) Since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. And it still happens today. And it's not just women. And it's not just rape. And it's not just out there. It's in here. It's this abuse of power. When someone who has authority is absent, or abdicates or abuses their authority, enables someone with power, with physical strength, emotional manipulation, financial wellness and know-how. Somebody who has some sort of power over another to use that power to get what they want and what they desire above using that power to serve and bless and care for others. We see it on the global scale. You do not need me to recount the headlines that you've seen this week. We do not, the, the sex trafficking and the, and the terrorism and the violence and, and the ISIS and the beheadings and, and the Boko Haram, people who have a belief that they think is so important that they have the right to take the lives of others, to kidnap whole schools of girls because they don't believe that girls should be educated. It happens all around us all the time. 
It's happening locally. You don't need me to tell you that in our community there is child abuse and domestic violence and and bullying going on in our schools and emotional abuse going on in our homes. And it happens personally. You know, maybe you and I are never gonna sexually violate someone, but do we in some way use the power that we have been given in an inappropriate way to pursue our own entitlement instead of loving those around us? Parents, do we use the authority that we've been given for our own good and for what we want instead of what our children want? Do we use, misuse our control and our power? Are we using it to serve others? We're gonna continue. Something fascinating happens, there's this turn Verse 15, then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. What just happened? What happened between my darling sister and get out of here? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Sin looks really good on this side, and we pursue it wholeheartedly, but the instant it happened, Ammon realized how loathsome, how awful the evil was that he just committed, and that shame and that guilt and that righteous conviction was too much for him to bear and so he immediately deflected it onto someone else. What he was feeling was self-hatred and what he expressed was hatred of Tamar because it had to have been her fault because feeling this bad can't be his issue. And you and I do this too. We sin and we can't bear that we've just done what we just did and so we blame someone else and we deflect the feelings because we can't stand the feeling of what has just happened. Jesus came to forgive and cleanse that feeling, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins. And until that moment, we can't bear it, and so we deflect it on others, just like Amnon did. And because he couldn't stand the sight of her, because he was so filled with his own self-loathing, he said, get out of here. And she cried, no, sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. There's no home for me other than yours. You have defiled me. You must keep me. And he will not listen again. And he tells his servant, throw this woman out. Before the sin, she's his darling sister. After the sin, she is this woman. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. This woman is not trying to hide. She's not trying to deceive. She has been defiled. She understands the loss of everything she has ever hoped for. And she leaves wailing. And she meets her brother Absalom, who says, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't worry about it. We have a culture of silence that is killing us. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And that's the last thing we hear about Tamar in the word of God. When David heard what had happened, he was very angry. That's all it says. His son raped his daughter, and he did nothing. He was just angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. The sins of the father, the consequences of David's sin. Logically, I can look at it and say, Amnon knew who Bathsheba was. Amnon knew what his father took, and and he chose to do the same. 
Did David do nothing because he had lost his spiritual authority and so he felt like he couldn't correct Amnon? Did David do nothing because he knew that the penalty was death and he didn't want to see his son die? Did David do nothing because he was just an overindulgent father and he just was letting his kids... I don't know why David did nothing, but David did nothing. Absalom seethed in his anger for two years and then he had Amnon murdered. And then he was exiled for three years to the country of his grandfather, the king of Jesher. And he comes back later, and and that's a story that we'll be telling in the coming weeks. When the person in authority doesn't do what is their job to do, the abuse of power gets to rise and rise and rise. And the reason I didn't want to preach this sermon, the reason when I saw what it was, I went out into the adult wing of our staff area and went, you guys, you'll never guess what sermon I got. See, when we decide who's preaching here, it's all based on the calendar. Can you do February 3rd? Can you do March 14th? Sure, I can do March 14th. Then I go and I look and see what you guys have been studying your Bible studies all week. And I go, oh, for crying out loud, right? (laughs) And the first question that came to my mind was, What do you do with passages like this in the Bible? And even more, what do you do with the reality of this kind of atrocity in our world, in our lives? What do you do with it? And I was really quick to tell God, I don't know. (laughs) So you can just, Holy Spirit, download a sermon anytime you want, because I don't have the answer to that question. What do you do when you can't see hope? And the first thing I would say is this. We need to see the suffering in our world for what it really is. We need to see it. And and I know that we see it in the headlines, but we are so desensitized to the pain in our world because of how many headlines we see. A few weeks ago, I was looking at the news. There were three little pictures back-to-back, little headlines right here. One of them was about some sporting thing, some athlete being traded to some team. Uh, one of them was about the rape of a woman in India, and one of them was about what color is the dress. (laughs) How are we to distinguish what is truly important when the stuff assailing our senses is so varied and we're so desensitized? And so as we see the suffering in the world, I want to encourage us not to overindulge in the sensationalism of it, but also not to turn our face away. And I have to confess, I am one who generally turns my face away. I don't like how it feels to witness the suffering in the world. I don't like to watch sad movies. I did not read Unbroken. I don't, I don't want to hurt that bad. There's enough pain in my life that I have to walk through. And yet, There was this day that I was in a Christian bookstore and I picked up a book about a woman who had been kidnapped as a child in Africa and and used as a slave in Africa. And as I thumbed through the pages, she began to describe what happened to her in her early days as she was being inducted into slavery. And And I slammed the book shut and I put it on the shelf and I left the bookstore. I said, I can't know this. I don't want to know this. I don't want these images in my mind. I don't want to know this suffering. I don't want to hear it. I don't, I'm not listening. And gently and compassionately, God whispered to my soul, Jennifer, if you will not look at the suffering of the world, you cannot be my vessel of healing and hope to those who are suffering. And so I began this journey of paying more attention, not 
diving into the over-sensationalism of it, but not turning my head away and paying attention to what is really happening. That as ISIS has taken over countries, they have taken this prerogative of war prisoners and there's whole people groups whose women have been taken as sex slaves within the last three months or six months or whatever the timeline is. There's a girl named Nu, N-H-U, she's from Asia, and uh, when she was 11 or 12, her grandmother was in such poverty that she sold her to a man for three nights because the price for a virgin is very high. And when she was back in her grandmother's house, she was sold several more times, at least once to the same man whenever her grandma was in financial straits. <laughs> it's an ugly world we live in. And it's happening now and it's happening all around us and we need to see it for what it really is. And part of seeing it for what it really is is, is looking at our own personal selves and saying, am I abusing my power? And another question we might need to ask is, am I being abused? It can get so confused, especially in the church where we would say, you know, don't talk bad about people. Um, lay down your life for others. It can get twisted so fast. An abuser saying, well, you're supposed to lay down your life for me. And somebody thinking, I am honoring God by allowing this person to misuse their power and authority over me. I have a... A book that I would recommend, if you find yourself in that confusing situation, uh, would be a book called Safe People. It's just an excellent, excellent read that talks through characteristics and qualities of somebody who is not safe and what it means to have a relationship with safe people and be a person who pursues safe people. We need to see it for what it really is. And when we have seen it, we need to act. <laughs> There is something to do, and I don't know what that something is for you, and I'm not exactly sure what that something is for me, although it starts by being here this weekend sharing the story with you. But there is some action that we are to take. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 61. It will be on the screen behind me if you want to read along. When Jesus first began his ministry, he was in the temple in uh, Nazareth, and they handed him a scroll to read, and he opened it up, and it was this, Isaiah 61, and he read it as a declaration of what his calling on earth was. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. And if this redemption, if this opposite spirit is Jesus' calling, then it's the calling of the church. And if it's the calling of the church, it's the calling for you and I. This calling to come in the opposite spirit to the spirit that the world is bringing. So, so when there is a spirit of pride, we come with humility. When there is a spirit of control and domination, we come with, we come with trust and, and a servant-heartedness. When there is a spirit of lust, we come with a spirit of purity. When there is a spirit of hate, we come with a spirit of love. We do what Jesus did, and we come in his opposite, upside-down kingdom to the world that is trying to fulfill their own entitlement through their own power and control. And we have to talk about it, church. This culture of silence that says, you know, somebody asked me, why is this story in the Bible? 
Why is it even there? I hate that this story is in the Bible. I hate that this happened. I've gone round and round and round in my mind trying to make it work out a different way so that this wasn't what happened to Tamar. But you can't change history, but you can influence the future. And part of the reason why this story is in the Bible is because God does not ignore the atrocities. God does not ignore the abuse or the injustice. And he is not hiding from you and he is not asking you to hide from him. He is not saying this is all in the family, shh, don't tell. We are not respecting God's honor by hiding the sins of the church. We are making a poor name for Jesus Christ by hiding the sins of the church. This must become a safe place to talk about the abuse that is happening in our world. So some of us will act by simply being people of God's kingdom who bring God's kingdom to bear in the places where we have influence. Others of us are activists. Let me explain. We've talked in this area before about God languages, the specific ways that we connect with God personally, and there's a whole bunch of those. Some people are naturalists. When they're in nature, they just, they know that God is God, and they sense his presence, and they, they, they recognize truth in the trees and the plants, and it's not because the trees and the plants are God, but because God created them, and they, they feel close to God in nature. And some people, their God language would be worship, when you're in this room and we are all worshiping God, you know that he is the high and mighty one and it is the place where your soul is refueled and you go, this is why I was called and I have strength to live another day because I have connected with God in this place. Some of us connect with God through his word. We get his guidance and we know that he left this for us and that is where we feel closest to God. Did you know that there is a God language for the activist? The person who senses God's presence, their purpose, his kingship in the world, and feels the closest to him when they are on the cutting edge of good and evil. When they are fighting for the kingdom of God and the goodness of our Holy One against the powers of evil in our world. I am not an activist. <laughs> but we must support and encourage and respect the activists among us. A couple weeks ago, my daughter brought home a, a magazine from C2. I point because right over there is where C2 is, one of our ministries for children here at church. And she brought home this magazine that had some stories in it. And in it, there was the story of a five-year-old girl who heard about a couple orphans and said, Mom, I have to do something. She started drawing and making cards out of her drawing and selling them. This five-year-old girl is now 13, and her organization has raised $80,000 for orphans. She is an activist, called and empowered and spiritually gifted by the Father, Father God to combat the evil of orphans. And yet in the church, we tend to put levels to the way that we connect with God. So the people that connect this way are really holy, and we would look at that and say, well, you're just being a social activist. That's not really worship. That's just social activism. Oh, no, it's not. When we are engaged in bringing God's kingdom to bear in the brokenness of the world around us, we are worshiping the living God. And we need to be supporting, encouraging, and empowering the activists among us. The next one might seem kind of counterintuitive, but stick with me. What do we do when we can't see hope? We hope anyway. Because hope isn't about what we can see. It's about who we believe in. And my hope isn't based on what I can do or what you can do. My hope is based on who God is and the fact that he is God. And there are times when we can't wrap our brain around that. And that's okay. This is a safe place for people who are going, I don't know if I trust God. And I don't know if God is enough. This is a safe place for that. And yet there are other times when those of us who God has given the gift of faith 
can be in faith for others. I want you to hear this. It's from Ephesians chapter 6. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. When we read the headlines, we see the flesh and blood battles. But the word of God is telling us that that's not actually the real battle. That the real battle is in the spiritual realm. It's in the place where there is an enemy of God and an enemy of our soul who is working to steal, kill, and destroy. And where there is a good God and his angels who are working to bring life and love and redemption and healing and power. And we are the church, the bride of Christ, and it is ours to enter into this battle with him with the tools that he has given us. He has given us tools in our family. He has given us authority in our community. We may not be able to impact the global scale the way that we think we should, but God has given us tools. One of those is prayer. And we say, well, it's just prayer. There's nothing just about prayer. Prayer will move the forces of God in the heavenly realm, and it will change the outcome for the poor and the powerless all over the world. See, when Jesus came and he died and he conquered death and he rose again, and as he was leaving, he said, therefore, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples. See, Jesus reestablished the right system. Remember the garden? Jesus came back and he said, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but in Christ, we are all equal. He brought the partnership back. And he said, this is my kingdom. I have demonstrated my kingdom. It is a kingdom of love. It is a kingdom of servanthood. It is a kingdom of power. It is a kingdom that comes to proclaim that God is good and he longs for the hearts of his people. And you, the church, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you are my church. People, the church is not Billy Graham. The church is not just Desmond Tutu. The church is not the names that you think are changing the world. The church is me and the church is you. And if we will not step into the authority that we have been given by Jesus Christ, then we are like David. We are angry, but we are doing nothing. And the abuse of power is on our heads because we have the tools to change the world because we are the children of the living God. We must hope for those who have no hope. Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her father's household. I was sitting in preaching team a couple weeks ago and I'd been mulling this over, and we were talking about this, this this weekend. And Brian Candelo said to me, Jennifer, where do you see Jesus in this passage? And I said, he's not there. Where was he for Tamar? Where was he? He wasn't there. A sweet little 12-year-old girl last night in a conversation with her dad, having heard the sermon, said, he was in Tamar, the one who fought for what was right, stood up for what was true, gave a way out. Susan Garlinger said, Jennifer, this is the line of Jesus Christ, and this did not cut off his coming. And in the same way, we are the kingdom of God, and the abuse and the atrocities that are here that we don't want to see but, but are here do not cut off the kingdom of God or the second coming of Jesus Christ. Friends, there is hope. The church does win. Jesus does win. And so we stand with those who can't stand for themselves. Ephesians goes on to say, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, you will still be standing 
firm. Friends, we stand firm on the hope of who God is. I read this magazine cover a while back and it said, can positivity change the world? And as good as positivity is, it can't change the world. Can good Christian people being good change the world? No. But can followers of Jesus Christ, dependent on the Holy Spirit of the living God, be a part of his changing the world? It is the only way. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.